Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Sam. Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, my name's Sean. If I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor, teach pastor here for Redemption Peoria. If you are new, just know Redemption Church is one church, 10 different congregations. Each congregation is elder-led, lead pastor-led. Kind of go over through that routine every Sunday. But if, uh, if you are new, it's good for you to know. And you might have questions about how we operate and all that stuff. I'll uh, be out by the Connect Us, myself and the elders. We can answer any questions you might have. Um, I want to say real quick, just so um, everyone's aware, you know, when you come here on Sunday... Uh, you know, you get here, I don't know what, you get here at like 10.30, 10.45, maybe some of you just got here at 11. Um, but when you get here, uh, things are already set up, and they were set up even before first service. Uh, and the donuts, the coffee, the connect desk, for those of you checking your kids, that stuff doesn't happen by accident, honestly. So I just, those of you who serve in setup, uh, and I know there's not as many in the second service, because um, usually if you do setup, you go to first service, but uh, those who do set up, if they are here, just honestly, I just want to say thank you. It's not past us uh, as myself, the elders, the leaders, and obviously before God that one of your days off, you're still getting up early so that you can uh, set up the church for those in the congregation to be able to enjoy things like coffee. So thank you for that. Um, let's jump right in. We got a lot to cover. Uh, I think we did a, a pretty good job of telling those of you who um, have younger kids and you don't want to uh, want them to hear the nature of the topics and stuff. We're going to be talking about sexuality. And so there's a lot of stuff in here that uh, we want to get at. We had a kind of pre-service slide and, and we put the stuff on social media. So now's the chance if you're like, you have a seven-year-old, you awkwardly stand up. Well, I'll look at you. Um, okay, so here, here's where I want to start though. Uh, Vince preached last week in the last three weeks. Um, have felt um, pretty, and I'll use the word legalistic, it's kind of overused, it's a little bit of a buzzword, but it's felt like there's been a lot of things where Ephesians, as of late, has been just telling us to do things. And I want to speak to that real quick, because if you haven't been with us for a while, um, you're probably feeling that, or if you're new, you're probably feeling that. You weren't here in the first three chapters when it used language like chosen, that God chose us, there's nothing that we did, but he chose us. You weren't here when we saw those two beautiful words, but God, in uh, chapter two, that we were lost in our sin, but God saved us despite those things, or that we were saved by the gift of God's grace, or we are in the family of God in chapter three, whatever it is. You miss those first three chapters, which set up chapters four, five, and six. Now, here's why this is important. And honestly, in some ways, is kind of, it's not a downfall of exegetical teaching, but it could be a problem in our context. Exegetical teaching is taking the Bible and just preaching it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. The problem in our context is that the average churchgoer, uh, which Pew Research has shown, uh, attends church twice a month. And that's like 
like we're lucky if you know like you go twice a month it's like you're solid uh and so when you if you go to church twice a month if you haven't been in a while you weren't in those first three chapters you're just hearing don't steal don't lie figure out a way to control your anger you're missing you're missing ultimately what it's going at um and i just want to remind you that those things were in place in a lot of ways what your experience is if you were to kind of parse out different parts of lemonade, right? So you get, the, no one just eats lemons unless you're a weirdo and you just eat just straight lemons because it's sour or just sugar unless you don't want teeth. You just eat sugar raw or just water. Well, you should probably just drink water. That's good. But regardless, the parts of lemonade that make lemonade make lemonade good because they're together. And that's what Ephesians is doing. It is this holistic idea of what Paul has been setting up in the first three chapters of the beauty of really solid uh, soteriological, meaning the study of salvation doctrines, that we are saved by Jesus alone. He's big. He's awesome. He saves. It's not our works. We were dead in our sin. And now because he has saved us, we respond accordingly. Now with that being said, how we respond is not just the lofty doctrines that he's been talking about, but we get into minute details. I mean, telling us not to lie, to figure out to work through anger, stealing, and today things like sexual morality. There, there's a process that we can kind of step back and go, God cares about the little things. And, and, and that's what I, I, I want to kind of propel us into our time. That we would understand from the beginning, the reason that the, 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 the back half of Ephesians is talking the way that it is, is it's not new to God. God in his very nature has always been and will always be this wonderful, wonderful word, holy. He's, he's set apart, he's perfect, he's holy, perfectly righteous. Now here's the trick in all of this. There are other ways that are counter to the way that God is and those things are unholy. And because God loves us, he tells us how to operate in holiness. That's why I want to read, before we get to our text, the first two verses that uh, Vince finished with, which was a perfect way to finish with this text last week, and I think is a perfect way for us to start our time this week. Listen to the first two verses of chapter 5. This is how it starts. Therefore, if you weren't here last week, then this is new to you, but it says this, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, there's a few things. If you can look at the text, just look at it in verses 1 and 2. Look, look at the first part, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So check this out. We're not talking about following just what God tells us to do. Do you see that? We're talking about following God. So there's a difference because you can do all the right things, say all the right things, or avoid all of the right things, but not be following God and be no different than the exact people Jesus argued with with his time on earth. That you can be pharisaical, you can be legalistic, you can be following pragmatics of religion and never be following or being, becoming an imitator of God. And the second thing, which is huge, again, look at the text, look at verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we're to pursue Jesus, the, pers- the person of Jesus Christ, and we see his ways and we see his philosophies and we see his ideas and we form into his image, hear me, this is huge, it's going to be a sacrifice. That means there's going to be moments that you need to be chopped away. That, I mean, look at the back half. We're following Jesus who is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And, and what we're going to talk about today is um, bringing our ideas of what we understand of sexuality and God is going to point us in the right direction. Now, before we do this, I want to read verse 3 
We're going to break it down, but there's two things I think we need to know as we begin to break this down. So let's read verse 3 together. This is what it says. Well, not together. I'll read it. You guys can just follow along. Um, but sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So let's start with the back half of that verse. What we're going to be talking about this morning is what is proper, not, not improper, what is proper among people who follow Jesus Christ. If you follow Jesus Christ, you consider yourself a Christian, you've been saved by his blood and his blood alone through faith and grace, and grace through faith. If that's all true of where you're at, then you before God are perfect. You're holy. You are a saint. And if that's true, there are things that are proper that need to be in your life. And there are things that are improper. Now, if you have kids, you know this. Like, this is what you walk through kids with. You tell them, like, they're just throwing their clothes or they're just throwing their toys wherever. And you, you explain to them there are proper places for those things. And so what we're going to talk about is what is proper. That, that all these things, as we process being a saint, there are certain ways that God has called us to act because we've already been saved, because of the work of Jesus Christ, that propels us to be in motion for holiness. Now, uh, contextually, let's talk about, because we're talking about, as we see it, sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness. Um, it goes without question, in our context, we are driven heavily by sex. I don't think I need to say that. I don't think anyone would contend with that. I mean, we're selling cheeseburgers, cars, we're doing it all with sex. And as we continue to go down this road, we can um, almost think that like, our, the sexuality that is in our culture might be a little bit different or heightened than in other cultures. And maybe that's true uh, currently in history, but that definitely was not true geographically in Paul's time. Meaning, if you remember going back to the beginning when we started Ephesus, or we started Ephesians, in Ephesus, uh, the god that, that is housed there, the temple that is there, is Artemis. And Artemis is uh, the god of fertility. And so, as you begin to understand what's going on in Ephesus, there's a, a heightened view of sexuality. Let me read a, a commentary real quick of what they said, what daily worship was uh, for people in Ephesus. I don't have any of the quotes. We had them all, the quotes and the, the other verses and all that stuff for you today. I think we might only have the verses, but... I got a bunch of quotes I want to share, but we won't have them on the screen, so you'll just have to track with me. This is what it says. One of the commentators said, Worship in the temple in Ephesus was comprised of the burning of incense and the playing of a flute music, as a result of which the people reached an emotional frenzy in which shameless, shameless sexual orgies were engaged daily. So just stop real quick. Here's what we can understand about our sexual culture. Even in our own context, for the most part, outside of parts in Nevada, brothels are completely illegal. It is illegal to have a place where you can go prostitute yourself, okay? Completely illegal. Now, I need you to imagine in this context, not only is it offshoot brothels, it's in places of worship daily that part of worship was sex. And so Paul is swimming in this stuff, knows what's going on in Ephesus, and he begins to address Christians who are interacting with a counter-gospel, a counter-culture to holiness, in, in, the, in, the, in which way God would act and push his people towards. And so uh, as we go into this, as you read these words, understand Paul is very intentionally writing them. So let's stop before we revisit the three words, sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness. I got to say what I say every time we have a talk about this or any time of reference in sin when it comes to sexuality, I need to put this in front of you. And I know some of you have heard it a million times, but hear it again. The goal in this moment, as God prohibits certain types of sexuality, is not because he's a killjoy. Better yet, it's not because he doesn't like sex. He made sex. He created it. It was his idea. Nobody, Adam and Eve were just like, 
well, what do, you, what do you think? No, that was him. He knew exactly how it would go. He knew exactly how our hearts, our mind, it was all his idea. So if you can just understand in the same way that if you have a friend or a classmate or a coworker that you begin to see them act in a way that isn't right, you want to go, hey, hey wait a minute, there, there's a way here. This is what God is doing in love. He loves you. And so he's putting these things in front of you to direct you how to act like Jesus. Let me uh, read something, because you can always be safe in quoting Piper. This is what Piper said. God's goal in creating, creating human beings with personhood and passion was to make sure that they were, they would be, there would be sexual language and sexual images that would point to the promises and the pleasures of God's relationship to his people and our relationship to him. In other words, this is what you need to hear, the ultimate reason, not the only reason, but the ultimate reason why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. That God has given us interactions and he relates all through scripture as a a groom with his bride, as a husband with his wife. He's constantly pushing in the direction of understanding that we can see what's going on. He gave us the Song of Solomon to, to be able to put language of how we feel in passion, not just in understanding, like, like I don't think as we read, we read Song of Solomon's, like the breasts that, that, that's being talked about are like the towers of, of Bashiel or something. No, they're actual breasts. Like there's something going on that he, he understands. He's a, a God who's created sex and put it in front of us for reasons to know him more, to bring him glory. And things outside of that are unholy. They do the exact opposite. And I think the three things that are mentioned are exactly that. The first one is sexual morality. Now I'm going to do my best to defend uh, as we go through these, why these refer to sex. So let's first start with sexual morality. I would argue sexual morality, which is a word, if you grew up in church enough, you probably have heard the word pornea. Uh, that's the Greek word. It's just, it's where we get our word pornography from. Uh, in a nutshell, it's been called to be this like junk drawer for all uh, fornication or sexual morality. I would contend for how much this word is used in the New Testament and how and when it's used, it predominantly refers to sex before marriage predominantly. Let me prove it to you, okay? Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, which 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you've never read before, talks a lot about sexuality. Um, it says this, Paul says this, because of the temptation to immorality, pornea, the same word that we have here, uh, each man should have his own wife and each her own husband. So he goes, because of the temptation to want to have sex, God has given you women a husband, God has given you men a wife. And it's, it's talking about sexual, now I'm not saying it's only, but predominantly as I read it through the text, this is what it's referring to. Uh, let me give you another example. In Matthew 15, which a few weeks back we referred to a lot, it says this, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, now listen to this, Look, listen to the delineation, adultery and fornication, or pornea, the, the word that we just had again. Meaning, even Jesus here makes the delineation. If sexual morality is just kind of all sexual access to junk drawer, why does he delineate between adultery and then pornea, sexual morality? Again, because I think it's referring to people before they're married, uh, having sex uh, uh, before marriage. The third one, this is, I think, it, maybe you're done with this, but I want to prove it to you. Um, in John eight forty one, Jesus is in this conversation with the Pharisees, and um, they're getting super mad because he's like saying essentially he's greater than Abraham. And what, what uh, comes, as it comes to head, essentially 
they're heated and they begin to take shots at who Jesus is and where he comes from. And one of the shots that they take is they make this statement. Listen, uh, in, in verse 41, they resort to saying this, we were not born of fornication or pornea. Now, the reason they're saying that is because the common rumor of that day was Mary and Joseph had sex before marriage and then had Jesus. And so they're calling Jesus a bastard. They're saying, you had sex before marriage. This is you. You were not in fornication or born in pornea. You were, right? And so ultimately what I'm trying to put in front of you is the idea when we see sexual morality, specifically in this context, I would argue a way that God has given us his love in following him is to say, hey, listen, I know you're 18 years old. I know you're 20 years old. I know you're 25. I know you're 30. I know you want to have sex with your spouse. Or, nope, stop. I know you want to have sex with your future spouse. Big, important delineation. Um, and so you're dating, and, and, you're look like you, you want, and, and what God is saying is, that would be a denigrating of the way I created sex. It would be a denigrating of it. Now hear me why I think this is important. Um, if, if you could just pause for a second and recognize the gift that that is. In that, for the rest of your life, if you're engaged to someone or dating someone you think you're going to marry, for the rest of your life, you will get to honor and worship God and love your spouse by having sex. For the rest of your life, you will show and display your love by having sex. But God has given you an opportunity right now to show and display your love by not He has given you a period of time right now where you won't get for the rest of your life. You will not, no longer in the rest of your life, get to show your love to your spouse by not having sex. He has given you that period right now. And we want to stir it up. We want to awaken it. I understand there's different false philosophies. How do you know if you don't try? You got like all these, but what God is putting in front of us, that is a denigrating. That is a, a pushing aside. It's a distortion of the way that I have made sex to be, to have sex before marriage is not part of God's holiness. The second thing, the second word is, and I quote sexual morality, and then it says, and all impurity. There's a few words as you look at that. Uh, I want you to see the word all there because it's, it's a displaying of many different things. This word impurity here, the, it appears 10 times in the New Testament. Every single time, it either appears next to sexual morality or covetousness. covetousness. And actually here, it appears between both of them, right? And what I need you to hear is, um, when it, the reason it's saying all impurity is it's um, making a delineation between different kinds of having sex, that there are impure ways to have sex. So in Ephesus, what was super common was things like bestiality, pedophilia, uh, necrophilia. These things were common, and these are distortions. So the difference being is you, a male and a female can have sex before marriage. It would be sin, but it's the right way of having sex. What he's saying here is there are wrong ways to have sex that are not okay. And I would put in this polygamy. I would put even, I would honestly put pornography that you are trying to conjure up things that are not the way that sex is supposed to take place. Even, I mean, in a selfish way with yourself. And so I I think the delineation is is important because this word actually is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1 in describing, uh, he uses the word impurity here and he gives as an example, homosexuality. He gives this example that this is a way that you can have sex that is not the way that I designed it. And not for kicks and giggles, but quite literally, the example that I thought of when I was thinking of process is you're trying to eat cereal with a, a butter knife. Like you might be able to make it work. Like 
but it's not the right way. You're, you're, you're doing it the wrong way. And so he's saying those versions of that are wrong. That, that, that's not the way that, that I design sex is what God is saying in this moment. And because he loves us, he puts in front of us those things. The third thing is, so from all impurity, or, and then lastly, covetousness. I need you to notice the or because it's, it's um, piggybacking on this. Uh, and, and here's what I would say about this. We're going to find out in a minute in verse, um, I think it's verse 5. Yeah, in verse 5, that it says also an idolater. Here's what's interesting when it says covetousness. Um, that word, honestly, the root word of it is where we get our word greed. Half the times in the New Testament, it's translated greed. The other time, it's translated covetousness. Now, um, I would argue this is not agreed for money or cars. I would contend, and I will right here, right now, that it is ultimately again dealing with sexual acts, specifically with those who are married wanting to have sex with someone else's spouse. Now, you, if you grew up in church, I didn't grow up in church, but if you did grow up in church, you've seen this word before. You just didn't know what it meant as a kid, right? You probably saw it on a felt board or some kind of laminated piece of paper, and you saw it. You saw it in the Ten Commandments. You saw, I, thou shall not covet. You didn't know what thou was or covet. You just knew you shouldn't do it, okay? But here's what you didn't know, what that laminate piece of paper didn't tell you or what that felt board didn't tell you, is the Ten Commandments, as you read them, Um, or as you probably, if you grew up in church, as you read them, are different than the Ten Commandments within Catholicism, or even within early Judaism. Matter of fact, the Protestant Ten Commandments that you grew up with, Calvin and Luther actually both disagreed with. So, uh, by way of example, let me me show you uh, this. Again, we had them on the screen, but I'm just going to explain to you uh, this. So, for example, if you look at... um, Let's, let's look at uh, commandment number three. It says this. The Catholic uh, commandment number three is, remember to keep the Lord's day holy. The Protestant commandment number three is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they're different. They're completely different. Now, um, you may were, weren't aware of this, but here's why all this is important. When you hear the word covenant, early Catholicism parsed out. They separated two different types of coveting. Okay, so if you read in the Protestant uh, um, Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment, does anyone know the Ninth Commandment? Let's see those who grew up in church. What's the Ninth Commandment off the top of your head? You all fail us. Okay, um, Bible answer man would not be happy. Okay, this is what it says. You shall not bear false witness. You shouldn't lie. That's the Protestant, don't act like some, I see some fist bumps. You didn't know it. I asked you and you didn't tell me. Okay, uh, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. You shouldn't lie. But what the Catholic Ninth Commandment is, this is important, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, the Protestant Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And the Catholic Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. So I need you to hear what we did. Within Protestantism, we made the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet anything of your neighbor's. That includes your wife, their car, their house, whatever it is. But Catholicism early on, and Calvin and Luther as well, said, no, there's actually a delineation of what's happening in Exodus 20, that there's a separating, that when we hear coveting, we need to hear coveting of greed. Yes, that's true. But there's also a coveting sexually, that that you are married to someone. God has given you that person, and you look at someone else's spouse. Look how great they are. Look how sexy they are. Look how they act, and you want them. And so I think the third perversion here, what Paul is putting in front of us, and Paul would be grossly aware of this, that ultimately there's a coveting sexually that happens between married individuals, two other married individuals, that is a distortion 
It's a distortion in the, which God, the way in which God has given us this gift. So he then goes on to say in verse 4, and for the sake of brevity, I'll be quick here, time-wise. Um, it says this, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So in, in a nutshell, I want to say this. Um, I don't think verse 4 is separate. I don't think it's giving us a new commandment. There's two reasons. As you look at the transition from 3 to 4, in Greek, two things you don't see. One, there's a word and, kai. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But two, it's a comma, not a period. So it's a continuation. And what I would contend is he's ultimately putting in front of us that it's not even okay to joke about the things I just mentioned, sexual morality, impurity, or covetousness. The language that he uses, he uses filthiness, which is the word indecency in Greek. No, no, no foolish talk, which the root word of that is where we get a word gesturing from. It, honestly, not for the sake of being crude, but what it quite literally means is don't act like an idiot when it comes to things like this. And then the third one is nor crude joking or debased joking. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes. These things are not for you. Now, as you hear that, just because we're talking about sexuality, I need to pause real quick because I need to talk about what it's not saying. Because I think the legalists in the room might go, okay, cool, that's simple. No joking about sex, okay? Um, Let me just say something on that. I do not think it's saying this, that if your boy's getting married tomorrow and and tonight you're just kicking it with them or your girl's getting married and you're having a bachelorette party, I just don't know what happens at bachelorette party, so I'm going to stick with the the groomsmen uh, together. So they're at the bachelor party. You guys maybe play basketball, smoke some cigars. You're just talking, right? As you're engaging, I do not think that this, this text is saying to treat sexuality with such reverence that you can't celebrate it. Meaning, if someone goes like, dude, you're going to have sex tomorrow. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't talk about that, right? No, check it out. When I do someone's wedding, especially the guys that I'm close to, I'm, I'm like, check it out. I'll go as fast as I can. Let's get through this ceremony. Let's get through this reception. Tonight is where the action is. That's all that matters, okay? So like the, the, the idea is that, hey, listen, these people before God are doing it the right way. And it's okay to celebrate in that. But to celebrate or to joke around about the distortions of that, I would say is wrong. So what I think it is saying is, like, I'm playing basketball with somebody and another married man, some girls come in and they go, you see her? I don't think that's okay. I don't think it's okay to joke around about committing adultery. Uh, matter of fact, this is, again, and it's such a heart issue, as is everything in the Bible, but, but as you kind of lay some of this out, I'm just telling you personally, what I began to feel convicted a little over five years ago, almost six years ago actually, um, was I felt like I needed to stop saying things were gay. Like, uh, me and my boys would be like, you're gay, you're gay, this is gay, that's gay. And I read this text, this exact verse, and I started to see a distortion of sexuality, not just to honor those, our brothers and sisters in the faith, who are struggling with same-sex attraction, but honestly, just going before the Lord and I, going, it's not okay to, like, joke about a distortion that I think is eroding someone's soul. Now, I'm not saying I'm pushing that conviction on you. I'm just telling you, as I read this, I think obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, those things are not proper for the saints. They're not. But I think there's a way to still celebrate that uh, in in, uh, right light. So with that being said, it ultimately gives us a remedy. And here's the remedy. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So it has told us, again, we've gone through this same deal over and over. It has told us to put aside sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes. And instead of those things, what we are to take on is, and I would argue, this is not just the remedy to sexual sin, but almost all earthly sins, gratitude. 
that you would be grateful. I mean, just, just think for a moment. Like, here you are, you, you, you want to have sex with your spouse or a future spouse. If you would just be grateful that God has given you a season or even has given you a future spouse, someone who loves the Lord, like, think of what gratitude in that moment does to counteract that. Because again, like, as we, we, we look at this, it's okay to want that, right? But at the same time, God has given you a season. Be grateful for that season. Let that season counteract all that's pressing on you. Or, or this is easy, right, for, for those of you who are married. I know that we have a young church, but those of you who are married, if you're not married right now, you can kind of chalk this up to a future uh, kind of storage space for you to open up and listen. Check this out. If you're married, gratitude is everything. If you could remember why you fell in love with her, if you can remember what was unique about her, and I'm not trying to be like obscene for the sake, remember her body. Remember his body. Remember what you liked about it. Like, like recall what drew you to them in her personality. Be grateful that God has given you someone to sanctify you. I mean, you got to be married but one a week and immediately like I'm recognizing it's not okay to leave my towel on the ground anymore. Like she's just not like I'm leaving breadcrumbs. Apparently that makes her mad. I don't understand why, but guess what? Maybe she's right. Like I grew up super poor. So we were living amongst roaches. I was like, let's just do this. So, 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 so here's, and that's true of our, our personality, that's true of my persona, that's the way I act, how I treat people. Candace over and over and over has constantly been a process of sanctification, teaching me, showing me, and I don't see it as aggravation. I actually long for it because Candace tends to be a passive person, but my point is it makes me grateful. You want to combat, uh, combat uh, idolatry? Be grateful for your spouse. Find ways, remind yourself, why you're grateful for your spouse. Now, from here, we're going to go into verses 5 and 6, but before I do, um, I want to stop. And the reason I want to stop is because I want to share just four things that are specific to talking about sexuality. Um, Because it's, I mean, there's no doubt that the church's view on sexuality is much different than the world's view on sexuality. But a big problem, and also that, is the way that the church has displayed its view in sexuality has been wrong as well, even though the view itself is correct. And so I thought of four things that I just want to share for us as a church as we hear sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, obscene stories, foolish shock, coarse jokes. How do we process some of this? And I think there are four things that would be good for us to know before we read verses five and six. And for the sake of brevity, I'll try to stay close to my notes. Here's the first one. Um, If you have a teenager or you are a teenager or you're uh, in that place that I talked about where you're engaged or dating or whatever it is, this is really important that we can display this and say this as a church. It's not wrong to want to have sex with your future spouse. Do you understand? Like, to say that's wrong is crazy. Because check this out. If you're engaged to someone and you don't want to have sex with them, we got problems. That's an issue. Like, I just don't want, not a chance. Like, what do you think's going down in six months? Like, and so, so hear me, to push uh, I think our kids, or even if you're in a place to put yourself or our peers, if they're, if they're in a place where they're engaged and they're on their way to marriage and they long to, to have sex with that person, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But like all good things, you're right, it can be distorted. 
You, you can take that good thing and you can move it in the wrong direction. But the desire itself, I mean, I, I can't help but think, is God given to want to have sex and to go, okay, good, that's good. Now let's wait. God has given you this season. It's a good thing. So to, to push that down is, I don't think, helpful. The second thing is, which is refers to ultimately, again, I'll try to say it in my notes, um, is uh, language uh, talking about and all the persona of the things around homosexuality. Um, I know that obviously within the Christian world, there's huge movements to accept homosexuality uh, and same-sex attraction as not sinful. And I, listen, and I've read the books by Matthew Vines. I've tried to do the best research to understand the logic behind a lot of that, and I can't get there. Um, I think without question, what the Bible is saying is a perversion of sex is homosexuality. But here's what I need to say to those of us who are in the church. Um, to tell someone, specifically a brother and sister in Christ, that they are in sin because they have same-sex attraction is wrong. Meaning if temptation is the you're out, is the sin, guess what? Jesus didn't make it. And so there are brothers and sisters in the faith who have same-sex attraction, and this is what's crazy, are fighting it 10 times harder than what you're fighting in in a, a relationship with somebody else that is not your wife. It's crazy to me. And the church has been so inconsistent in this area, we've lost ground when it comes to our areas of mission. Like, I've been the youth pastor who's... They don't even know. Two dads are talking, and I'm just sitting there kind of cleaning up. And here's two dads having a conversation. And the one dad is trying to, what, like, what do you think? My 17-year-old, he's kind of sleeping around with girls. I don't know what to do. And the dad literally says, well, it could be worse. He could be gay. Hear me. Wrong. No. That would not be any worse. That's no greater of a sin. It's not. It's not a greater sin there. And so, so we have brothers and sisters who are struggling with same-sex attraction. But for some reason... Because of some type of phobia, we've made this a bigger deal than these other sins. We're not willing to address the man who is flirting with somebody else who's not his spouse. We're not willing to address the man who works 80 hours a week because he's greedy. But we are willing to point out the non-believing person, Christian values. That makes a ton of sense. No, hear me. We need to be consistent. We need to be consistent. To have sexual desires of same-sex attraction... There's a huge delineation, and they're fighting it. Man, like, the church has just missed this so much. We've missed it so much. They're trying to abstain. They're fighting this. They want to be open with their community, and they feel like they can't be, which leads me to the third thing that I think is important, is um, I think ultimately we have to recognize that we are all coming to the table with a part of this. So there are men in the room right now who are addicted to pornography. There are men in the room right now who don't look at pornography at all, but every night they go to sleep, they can't help but fantasize about a woman. There are men in the room who fantasize about other men. There are men in the room who have that same-sex attraction who watch gay pornography. There are women in the room who watch pornography, and then there are women in the room who don't even understand how other women look at pornography, but they fantasize for days. There are other women in the room who are attracted to other women in the room. And this is all of us, all this adultery, sex before marriage, homosexuality, these desires that are broken because of Genesis 3, we're all coming to the table. And man, again, we've lost the area of mission because we feel like there's moments in community where we can't be honest with our sexual sin. And I love that Paul combats this. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, listen to what he says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. So the unrighteous aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do, do not be deceived. Neither. He names four things. The sexually immoral, immoral uh, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So what we've been covering up to this point. Then he goes on to list more uh, things besides sexual sin. Thie, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor rival, uh, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to the beginning of verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You hear that? Like you're coming to the table. You're, you're coming to the table and you've got a wiring that you've created pathways in your brain that you think you can only be stimulated through looking at something on a screen. And now you're a Christian. And guess what? That desire didn't go anywhere. And so you have this desire, you're trying to rework that thing, create new pathways in your brain, you're trying to get there, and it's not easy, but you feel like you can't tell anybody. And because you're not honest with your sexual sin, because you don't believe that was some of you, here's somebody who has same-sex attraction, they they don't know what to do, they're processing it, they want to get there, and they feel like they can't be open. Hear me, as a community of faith, if we want to show a beautiful sexual ethic to the world around us, that there is something that God has put on display, and that is sex, then we have to start with the household of God in being open with our sins. We have to. And I understand it can feel embarrassing, I understand it can feel taboo, but we got to get there. The fourth thing that I want to say about this, and this is, um, I think, pretty important overall in the way that we tend to fear monger with sex. Um, the issue that Paul's concerned with here is not STDs, you guys. It's, it's like he will tell us in Romans 1 that there is a due penalty because of distortions of sexuality. There is a penalty physically that will come with that, but that's a byproduct of the issue. Like, Paul's not concerned with syphilis. He's concerned with your soul. And what he's telling you is that there's a denigrating, a a different way to do this that's eroding how he's created it. He's eroding, like, your spiritual life. It's trying to take you over. Hear me. It's demonic. Can we just be straight? It's It's telling you there's a better way. I mean, man, you won't know unless you try, so try it. There's a different philosophy, a different idea. If you would just do this, give it to how you feel. And what God is saying is, wait a minute, because I love you, I've given you holiness. I've given you true human flourishing. I've given you ultimate joy in these things. And so as we process this, we can tend to like think of like fear-mongering being the answer. No, no, no. This is demonic. There's something that's detrimental to the soul. I don't think anybody has said it better than C.S. Lewis on the screw tape letters. I've read this quote before, but listen to how a demon, C.S. Lewis would write, a demon would encourage another demon to attack you in areas of sexuality. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures, which our enemy, who is God, which God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees, which he has forbidden. So take the things that God has forbidden, okay, that he's made, Uh, Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is, this is huge, it is least natural of its maker and least pleasurable. So what, what this other demon is telling this other demon is, when you deal with humans, try to get them to work furthest away you can, away from the way that God had designed this thing to be. And what ultimately that happens is, they'll continue to go over and over and over, but it's actually least pleasurable. It's pushing away from the ultimate pleasure. A monogamous relationship with a husband and a wife together. There. But then it says this, and I love this. And this is, this is where I think um, it, it stirs our soul a little bit. 
the goal here, check this out, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. You hear what he said? An ever, like, like so what, what demonic forces are trying to do is they move us away from the way that God has designed sex is ultimately present an idol, present uh, a freedom, present a joy, but it's hollow. This will make you happy. And some of you have gone down that road and gone down that road and gone down that road and you find yourself and you realize that the return, it's diminishing, isn't it? And you wake up one day and you go, what am I doing? Like I continue to do this over and over and I I think it's going to bring me happiness over and over again and again and it's just awful. It's demonic. That's exactly what idols do. They never fail to fail. They will lie to you. Which leads us to verses five and six and where we need to finish. Um, it says this, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is a covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The way that this little section here on sexuality uh, finishes is it, in a nutshell, says we need to take this serious. I mean, you can't help but read over and over how much the Bible talks about perversions of sexuality. So look at, the, look at the, the text. Look at verse 5. There's huge things. First of all, notice the transition from talking about things to talking now about people. It goes to identity issues. Look at that. Um, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or, or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Before it was saying there's sexual immorality, but now it's saying the sexually immoral. It's taking the sin and now it's taking on an identity which is an issue, because check it out, that's what sin wants to do every time. I would argue specific to sexual sin. So now you go, man, I just, I don't know, it's not that wrong. Well, here's the problem. What you've just done in that moment is you've shown your cards. Because a believer in Jesus Christ who's trying to be shaped in the image of Jesus Christ is never going to be okay with sin. And in the moment where you go, it just is what it is, and you accept sin, you become something besides a son of God. You've become sexually immoral. Now, not just you're fighting it. This is the difference between practicing it, like you're just taking it on for what it is. You're just doing it and fighting it and struggling with it. The, the, the man who's going, man, I don't want to think those thoughts. I don't want to think. And the other one who fixates on it and processes it and hopes some find ways to flirt with her, there's a difference. It's an identity issue, which leads to the second thing. Do, do you see what it just said there? The person who takes on that other alter identity has no inheritance. And I'm not trying to be like a fire and brimstone preacher, but check it out. When you begin to be okay with sin, you are not a Christian. More importantly, can I just, just, I'm not trying to be fire and brimstone. You have no inheritance, and I'll say it as nicely as I can, you're going to hell. That's how big of a deal sexual morality is. You're going to hell. You have no security, you have no hope. God, I pray you would hear what he's putting in front of us, how big of a deal this is. You know, the third thing that I, I can't help but notice in this text is everything I'm putting in front of you, or forget what I'm putting in front of you, just what Paul's putting in front of you, there are going to be people who say otherwise. There will be people who try to deceive you with empty words. Well, I mean, you, you desire it. I mean, if you love me for who I was, then you just accept that. Wait a minute. My hands are tied. Like, how are you going to know you want to be with them for the rest of your life? Like, what if you get married and, like, you're just, like, sexually not compatible? 
There's going to be empty words that people will put in front of you, empty philosophies that try to deceive you. Do you hear that? Be careful. And lastly, the fourth thing that I can't put notice as we read the, uh, the text is the, the back half of, of six, which is just crazy. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I think it's referring to the previous sins, but I think part of that is sexual morality. Just hear that. For these reasons, the unholiness that exists apart from God's righteous plan and sexuality, God's wrath is coming. His wrath is coming. And I pray that we would take this serious. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thanks for your goodness and your grace towards us. Thank you that you have given us the ability to uh, read a text like this and know that um, there are inconsistencies in our own life and the way that we say we follow you. So I just, real quick, I pray for those who are not married and desire to be married. I pray that you would give them the ability to um, process their life as is now, to find ways to bring you glory now. Because in the future, they'll get to do it in other ways, but now they would find ways to give you glory by abstaining from sexuality. The second thing the person I pray for is those who are addicted to perversions of sex or those who, um, whether that be in pornography or those who have desire for the same sex, um, as they continue to fight as believers in Jesus Christ, I pray for boldness. I pray that you'd give them strength. I pray that you'd give them a community where they can be open about these things that understands that we're all in this together. And those who've just accepted as is, I pray that you would show them the errors of their ways. And lastly, I pray for those who are married and continue to look over the other side of the fence at someone else's spouse who continues to um, flirt in ways that are not okay, text in ways that are not okay, act in ways that are not okay, and honestly fantasize in ways that are not okay. Please be with them, Jesus. Thank you that you love us so much that you have given us ultimate joy in the way that you have designed sex. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're new, we're going to take some time just to be. And uh, what we've been doing the last couple of weeks is meditating. And I want to, um, I want to read some verses uh, for us to meditate on. It's going to be a little bit different. I'm just going to read three or four verses. We're not going to take as long for the sake of time. But as we uh, do this, um, and you weren't here, you haven't been here, um, I'll challenge you just try to let the Word of God kind of wash over you. And maybe it might be awkward for you to sit and meditate on the Word of God. Um, but we're just going to do this together. So I'd ask you, if you can, just close your eyes. Um, just try to be still for a second. I'm just going to give us two or three verses to chew on in different areas of sexuality. God, speak to you this. This is the Word of God as you hear these things. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Sit on that. If you're married, hear that. God has given you the marriage bed. Just sit there. Just be an honor to how he's designed it. Listen to 1 Thessalonians. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to control their own body in holiness and honor, 
not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who've done this before who do not know God. We control our bodies. Lastly, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is so convicting about our bodies. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. God will destroy both one day. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Read that last part again. Huge. The body is not meant, it's not designed for sexual morality but for the Lord. That's why God has given you the body. And the Lord for the body. That's why he's come to us. We are physical beings. Sit there. He's given you this. You're a temple of God. Just be for a minute. Father, we love you thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that we can have a moment where we just sit and be. Thank you for the convicting nature of the Holy Spirit, the encouraging nature of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would continue to fight about things that wage war against our soul, as you tell us in 1 Peter, the demonic forces that desire to give us different ideas that are not of you. Help us. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name.